everyone and welcome to the director's club podcast i am your host jim laskowski and joining me today for yeah a shorter than usual episode recording just two days after christmas is the delightful co-host of the christmas movies actually podcast please welcome to the show making her debut appearance carrie finnegan well thanks jim it's it's good to be here i'm so happy you're here uh, yeah and yeah, like I said, the reason for this being a bit shorter, it, you know, definitely has to do with the holidays, but I'm also prepping for some last minute viewings and rewatches for the annual year end favorites. And that's coming up soon, probably in a week. And it's going to feature former co-host Patrick Rapole, Brad Strauss, Bill Ackerman, in which we will probably talk for 20 hours. Um <laughs> about the bizarre year in film that was 2021 so stay tuned to your feeds because that one is going to be a doozy as ned ryerson as ned ryerson would say um and also people should know and if you're listening to this episode and are excited for that upcoming discussion i also have blu-rays to give away during the year oh, end of prizes yeah <laughs> prices and surprises it's going to be like the price is right um it's it's just really exciting because um a publicist was like hey why don't we give away some copies of this movie on your show and i'm like i'm i'd love to send them here and they arrived uh just right before christmas and i couldn't be more excited for that I'm not going to make it a complicated contest <laughs> or anything. <laughs> Just going to be like, all right, email. And guess what? You might be a lucky winner. Now, Carrie, since this is the first time you're on the podcast, I'm wondering if you could briefly just tell us a little bit about your background, particularly in how you developed your avid interest in film and where it's brought you today, and including now, uh, of course, co-hosting a great uh, Christmas movies podcast. Yeah, well, I think that's that. Yeah, so I co-host that that Christmas movies actually podcast. And then my journey in film, I think more starts with with lists and going through lists. I'm just an avid. Um, if somebody makes a list of movies, I want to go through that that list and I've created different lists for myself to go through. Um, so I've I went through when AFI started doing their list and and good or bad. I mean, I, I know that there's, there's people who are critical of lists and what should be on it and what shouldn't be. But um, right or wrong, I just want to kind of see it just opens my eyes up to, to new movies. So um, when I was in, in college and undergrad at um, Marquette University, I got to take a, 
a, a film class as a as an elective Ooh. while I was studying social work, and that was my first foray into into Fritz into Fritz Lang here. So, but we yeah we we kind of went through the silent you know we started in the silent era, and then went all the way up. The last film we watched was Raging Bull. And that mm. um, that I think kind of tipped me off then into finding even more lists to, to consume, uh, but then also just really wanting to explore some some people that I, I felt were were overlooked and particularly Fritz Fritz Long was one of those people who I thought like wow I've never <laughs> I've never heard of him before <laughs> like what am I missing so. Especially since I'm I'm a really big fan of Alfred Hitchcock, and I think there's a lot of parallels there. So um, I I was just like, wow, this is this is so amazing, and it's always wonderful when you kind of discover somebody new or somebody that you that you don't know that much about. And and I just think his life is kind of fascinating too. And one of the segments that we do on Christmas movies actually is so my my current list that I'm going through. Um, after so I did the AFI list, I did all the best picture winners, and now I'm going through a book called A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, which includes five Fritz Fritz Long movies, and one of the movies I've never I've I haven't watched yet. So I'm excited to to watch that. It's not one of the ones we're talking about today, so don't worry. Oh, that's fine. No, I, I'm I'm excited to watch more. I mean, that's the thing about doing this show is that yeah you can watch four or five sometimes even up to eight or nine movies of a director and you still have way more to see especially in the case of of uh, fritz long and uh especially alfred hitchcock which still needs a sequel episode <laughs> that's that was done a long time ago and i think next year is mainly going to be sequels or remakes too directors covered in the past so that's kind of what i'm leaning towards right now because they're just you i go back and listen to the old episodes when we had no idea what we were doing and i'm like oh i really want to redo this um i guess i'm turning into ridley scott you know like how, going back to blade runner <laughs> over and over and over <laughs> and over again uh but yeah everybody get out your monocle uh yeah, and we're we got we have our monocles in now so we're yes ready and uh, yeah, this is like I mentioned before we started recording. This is a director that warrants a part two sequel discussion because he has so many films I want to talk about. And we're only covering a few this time and mostly in uh, general discussion rather than a deep analysis. Uh, undoubtedly, we're going to be talking about the two um, he is most known for it, which include Metropolis and M. But I also wanted to highlight Fury as well as The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. And I believe all of these are accessible on streaming, either on Canopy, the Criterion Channel, or however you find great classic cinema. But before we launch into the director of the episode proper, I also have a segment on this show, and it's called What We Watched Recently. Yay! <laughs> and that shall commence right now. Carrie, what new release would you like to bring up to the listeners to possibly check out and uh, 
discuss a little further here. Well, the most recent new movie I, I saw was was The Matrix Resurrection. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Nobody on Twitter is talking about that movie at all. So we, we're going to have the hot takes right here, everybody. <laughs> I just, oh, see, this is interesting. It's, and, it's, and it's something I'm sure will come up to some degree, even if it's not going to make a list of, of ours in terms of favorite films. But uh, some people are just over the moon about this new Matrix sequel. Uh, I've, I've, I've heard a lot of in, insane praise. I, I guess insane is probably not the right word. But and I think to be kind, I think there are people who are just really, really into the matrix and i don't consider myself to be just just the whole world and all in the other three movies and i had really wanted to go back and re re rewatch the first three because i haven't seen them in a long time and i just consider myself kind of a a casual fan of of the matrix but i know that there are many people who take it very seriously and i wasn't able to go back and 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 rewatch any of them uh so i just kind of went into it went into it uh blind here but i think maybe that that benefited it for me that i i um i don't know i i mean i i didn't hate it and i i i think i liked it more than i expected to even though i can see where uh some people might be frustrated by some of the the choices that were made uh <laughs> i think one of the biggest and this is a very small thing um but one of the things I, I really liked is that in sometimes in these, I don't know, modern franchise uh, movies, they replace, they, they keep the men in their 50s, you know, the, the men get to age, but then the women, hmm. they seem to recast them as younger versions or, oh, that, that woman's too old to be in this movie now. We need somebody younger. We need somebody different. And they had some younger people in there, but I think... Um, bringing back Carrie Ann Moss as, as Trinity was was um, was was good to to see yes. on screen, and I kind of thought that it almost seemed like it was a fan fiction movie made by by the <laughs> filmmaker themselves. I mean, because I could tell, like, wow, this like the person making this film, Lana Wachowski, like she she really likes these characters. Like, I'm like, I I oh, just for wanted. Sure. For, for me, I was like, you know, I just want to like, this isn't, I don't, I didn't see it as like a, a money grab thing or like, oh, let's cash in on the matrix or they were even kind of poking fun at that. But I was just like, you know, this just seems like somebody who really wanted to return to these characters. And, you know, maybe it's not the greatest of the, the matrix franchise, but, but for that, you know, I was like, that's, that's okay. I'm okay with that. And I ended up being okay with it as well. The first time I saw it was at a screening and I was getting a killer migraine oh. and, and it, like the first 45 minutes and especially that white rabbit sequence with how uh, fast paced the editing was. And I was just kind of like, mm -mm, I don't think I'm going to feel this movie right now, <laughs> especially if the action gets ramped up, which it, it kind of doesn't, until later in the film which also surprised me this whole movie was just a how i felt 
was a surprise. I was not anticipating getting a migraine. Um, and then my reaction and the film itself was a surprise. And then the glowing love for the film was a surprise. Uh, so on that level, I'm, I'm glad it exists. And I'm glad, be, and it's also tricky too, because when I saw the first Matrix in 1999 and it ended, I said, that's perfect. I don't ever want to see a sequel. I honestly think this can stand completely on its own and is a great action, science fiction, spectacular. And then of course there were sequels. <laughs> and I, I wouldn't say I dislike them. I just didn't connect as strongly to them or at least, I don't know. There was, there always has felt a little bit of a disconnect with me uh, with, with returning to this world and adding so many layers to it in mythology. I know the animatrix animatrix exists and I'm sure there's uh, graphic novels and all sorts of things, but I, I liked the, how contained that first film was. I like the note that it ends on. I like the message. I like the idea that we're living in a simulation and, Certainly there are theories out there now that uh, expand on that by very smart people and physicists and things like that. So I, I dig it. And I, and I still go back to the first one and kind of go, yeah, this is, this is pretty much a perfect film. And, you know, even if other people disagree. And so, yeah, my response to the matrix resurrections now having seen it, um, both on the big screen and in the comfort of my own home where I can sort of focus a little bit better with headphones on and not have a migraine. Uh, I, I ultimately land on, it's okay. I liked it. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I just kind of went, hmm. I, my, it's, and it's also hard to dance around spoilers because I know not everybody's seen it, although it's, it is available on HBO Max and you can run to your local theater to see it now. Uh, I, I mean, I guess I can say if you want to not know anything spoiler wise, you can skip ahead a bit, but I think for me, I would have liked to have seen Trinity and Neo team up sooner. I felt like that is the big payoff. That's the big moment. That's when I got goosebumps again to some degree, once they team up and are riding a motorcycle. <laughs> you know because i'm like yes trinity get away from that horrible chad <laughs> and that momentum is pretty much relegated to the last you know 15 20 minutes or so and i guess the very end made me think is this kind of a you know an, another origin story of trinity and neo together as the one which I love that idea. And I love, you know, when Trinity is basically taking control of the whole flying thing, <laughs> you know, I thought that was great. And, uh, but a lot before that, I just, it felt kind of messy. And I realized that some Wachowski movies are, are messy <laughs> and they spell out their themes, you know, directly to the point of, you know, them saying this is Warner Brothers and we have to start thinking about what the Matrix 4 will be. I mean, they say that in the movie. I realize they're portraying it as a video game. Uh, but, and 
clearly things like Wes Craven's New Nightmare and Joe Dante's Gremlins 2 sort of do the meta commentary on creating a sequel being kind of eye-rolling and unnecessary. They sort of comment on that in this film in that same way. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I guess... I guess I just found it silly. <laughs> I mean, I laughed and I'm like, I'm laughing in a Matrix movie and I don't know how I feel about that. I, I mean, like, I, I'm still conflicted, yet I'm landing on positive in in general. It's just kind of like, I maybe I wasn't prepared for how this started and then ultimately where it went. And um, I'm, I'm still not too clear on jada pinkett smith's role in the, all the whole thing uh you know there's there's certain things that maybe after a third viewing it'll clear up and make more sense or feel more satisfying for me but uh i just don't have as much investment as i would have mm-hmm. liked in this franchise because <laughs> the first one is so great and so strong um and i do really really like cloud atlas for you know again all its flaws there's still some emotional current that i just um i feel i feel a lot watching that movie i and read that i i i couldn't bring myself to watch the movie because i read the book for a book club and i just hated the book so much that ooh, I like, that's rare to hear i could not i was like i'm not even gonna take a, a pass at this never mind <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, there there are people who love the book and don't like the movie, and there are people, I'm sure, who, who uh, don't like the book. And you know, if you don't, I'm I'm guessing the movie won't connect with you, uh, and that's that's understandable. It's it's dense, it's challenging, it's got a lot going on, a lot of characters, a lot of interconnections, and. Uh, you know, again, you have to be in the right frame of mind to absorb all that energy. And it's not a film I've gone back to yet, but the first time I saw it, I was kind of overwhelmed. Um, not in the same way as The Matrix, but certainly, I guess, the message of uh, interconnectivity and identity and just all of it being kind of fluid. Really, uh, yeah, it, I, I obviously it felt like, and this, The New Matrix too, I'm not going to take away anything from from Lana Wachowski because this does feel very personal. Yeah, well, and then I so and after during the credits, I was kind of like, well, why is it just her? Like, where's Lily? I didn't. And and one thing I read was that this that um, it was personal because they lost their parents within five days of each other. And. And you know, it's it's just that interesting thing about grief. And I may be the only one to make this connection, I will say. But um, uh, so, you know, Lana's grief took her back to something familiar and she wanted to, you know, that's that, that, that my fan fiction idea like, came back in my head. Sure, <laughs> she wants to be with Trinity and Neo and be, you know, grounded in, in something that is familiar to her. And And Lily kind of, I guess, had said that, you know, after after her transition and that she did not want to go back to that like she just wanted to go forward and I was like that's you know we all grieve in our own ways and go through different different things and that's something the part that 
may or may not be on on film Twitter, I guess, is that I'm also I'm watching the um, and just like that, the Sex in the City revisit. Oh where we're seeing, we're seeing all the. I, I wouldn't I don't know if I'm if I would say I'm I'm hate watching it it's it's not it's not great but it's like oh but I know these people <laughs> like you know <laughs> and I'm just like I can't not watch it but also I don't know how good it is but they're exploring grief uh, in in there like there's a a big arc that has to do with with grief there and I'm just like mm, I like I'm like well I think that 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 the Matrix Resurrection is is doing it better than um, than and just like that. So. Oh sure, I'm sure that's the case. <laughs> I I I respect both of them for both the of their decisions as different as they may be, you know. And it's like, yeah, I understand wanting. Does isn't there a line in the movie too where uh, a character says, "Nothing cures anxiety like a little nostalgia." Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I really do like that line, uh, and it, and it makes sense because that's why things keep getting remade and rebooted, and the movie itself is kind of commenting on that, and I find that really interesting, especially coming from a major studio like Warner Brothers. They, they, they don't mind you know pushing the envelope a little bit here with this, and I, I respect that. I, I just don't know if I found it fully satisfying as an entire movie on its own and i'm i'm certainly one of those people too that think eh, it could have ended with just one movie in the matrix and that's it and yeah i don't know if it needed to expand further but i also can't deny there's really cool stuff in all three of the sequels that i could see why people really do love this and they also um I believe both of the Wachowskis worked on a show on Netflix called Sense8. Oh. Uh, and yeah, I, I I really thought that was interesting and again, expanding and grounding the themes of Cloud Atlas to modern times in a way that was really compelling. And it's a show that I haven't seen in a while and I'd like to go back to. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I uh, first time I saw it was like, Mm-mm, no thanks, don't need this. Now I understand it, uh, but and I appreciate it. But I'm also not in the holy crap that was amazing love category. Yeah, yeah. That a lot of Twitter um, seems to be uh, uh, wrapped up in right now. But for me, I want to briefly talk about a film that may make my top twenty-five, but I'm still finalizing my list. Um, and it's not necessarily super recent of a title either i this is one of those years too where i don't know what release dates are anymore um it's got it's gotten a little confusing but i caught up with it recently because after seeing the film holler i looked up uh the i I just basically imdb jessica barden because i thought wow who's this after seeing holler and she has another movie that came out technically this year. It probably premiered at some festivals last year or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, she's the lead actress in another film that I'd like to mention called Pink Skies Ahead. Oh. Which got its start as an essay that chronicles the director's own diagnosis of panic disorder. 
And the essay is called No Real Danger, and it appeared in a collection of essays called When You Find Out the World is Against You, which I am immediately buying. <laughs> um, so yeah, Pink Skies Ahead is written and directed by Kelly Oxford. Again, I'm pretty sure it is considered a 2020, 2021 release. And uh, I believe MTV Studios of all, of all oh, okay. studios is responsible for putting it out. And if you look it up on, on Amazon, it's very strange because it's under TV episodes and it makes no sense because it's a standalone movie. I don't, I don't get what they were doing at least through amazon what maybe they were confused that all they saw was like mtv oh it must be a tv movie thing or something i don't know but it's not it's it's a story that takes place in 1998 <laughs> there are needle drops that remind you of that um and the film opens with winona played by jessica barden who is yeah you know acting a little angrily and complaining about life as a 20 something uh complete with some juno like retorts <laughs> and quirks here and there uh so it's one of those movies that starts off a little shaky uh you might want to just start rolling your eyes at some of the some some of the interactions and the dialogue but um she's experiencing a lot of uncertainty in her early 20s having just dropped out of college uh and and just you know sort of wandering around aimlessly uh, her parents are played by michael mckean and marcia gay harden gotta love gotta love those parents yeah. uh and they've together decided to sell their home move to a different one so she's not happy about that um and just just spending time hanging out with her friends and drinking slushies uh and struggling to find a job keep a relationship and she's just, you know, like a lot of us in our early 20s, just not sure what they want to become ultimately, you know, like, oh, college isn't really going to help me out here with this. And she is still seeing her um, childhood doctor played by Henry Winkler, which I'm, that was one of the elements. I'm like, oh, well, that's quirky. She's she's going to a pediatrician, um, even though she's 20 uh, or 21 around there. And yeah, so she's just always anxious and overly thinking. And so, you know, like her doctor basically just says, I think you have anxiety disorder. But of course, Winona is very skeptical. Uh, and then late in the film, after she experiences a pretty heavy breakup, she experiences something that I did, which is a panic attack that lasts way longer than it should. And it prompts her to finally let her parents in on what's going on, which is something I didn't really do uh, in my teens when this was happening. And I kind of just went, I, I'm probably going crazy and I don't know what to do about it. I'm just going to hang with my friends and ignore it. And that's kind of what happens in this movie. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, there are definite moments where it's a little precious and some interactions don't ring true. It does feel like a screenplay at times. But once we start dealing with her mental health and the way she responds to stress in a more thoughtful manner, I I don't know, I slowly started to see myself in this story. And 
as anyone knows, any film that sort of examines any kind of mental illness, I'm immediately drawn towards as long as it's it's done with empathy and and very careful consideration. Again, <laughs> like we said with uh, Lana Wachowski, this is definitely a personal story for the writer director. Um, and you know, in terms of technique, the the way the story is told, it's nothing we haven't seen before in other coming of age stories. But I was really drawn in once again by Jessica Barden um, and her sort of crisis of self. Uh, and especially once she's getting real with her parents, that's kind of like something I'm like, ah, oh, that's what I should have done. That might have helped things, <laughs> you know, to be, I mean, it's hard to know how to process something like anxiety. And I think this movie really does capture that. Yeah. Like, like the tendency to sort of, ah, it'll go away. You know, it's not a big deal. Uh, I don't need to go to therapy or try group therapy or anything like that. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get through it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very thoughtful film. It's told with a lot of heart, you know, in the end it's, it's saying, you know, I've been there. I know what you're going through. There is help. You should open up and talk to somebody about what you're feeling. And I, I think automatically I'm, I'm inclined to feel some, you know, emotion towards when a film does that well. And anxiety is something I know my family has struggled with, struggled with throughout generations. So it's refreshing to see a movie like this, knowing that it can help other people when they see it, it'll help them sort of understand possibly what they're, what they're going through. I wish I'd seen it. <laughs> In my early 20s, I think that would have been a great help. So I hope other people do seek this one out, even if you kind of throughout might go, uh, nah, this isn't really doing it for me. I really do think, especially, you know, uh, about halfway through, it, it really picks up and it really becomes um, involving. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, I think this is just more my jam and I can understand if people don't respond to it but I just think for the story it tells, and especially Jessica Barton, people should check it out. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. And yeah, I mean, and, and I always think that the people telling personal stories like that can always help remove stigma for, yes, for people. Exactly. So um, yeah, like you were mentioning, you know, you'd wish, you'd wish there was a movie like this in, in your early 20s so that people can, can process things better. So if it can help somebody, that's great. Yeah, I, th I think that's why I'm praising it. It's certainly not, you know, it's, it's not going to be one of those films that everybody's going to be talking about from 2021 or something, you know, but I think at the same time, it's worth mentioning. Mm -hmm. And anytime I do have a strong response emotionally to something, I'm like, yeah, okay. I It's not high art. It's not Memoria or Power of the Dog or something, but hey, I liked it. I hope you do too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's all it comes down to. But let's move on. We're ready. Let's do this. Ready. Fritz.
Our director for this episode said in an interview with William Friedkin back in the 70s that he makes films with a sleepwalking security, (laughs) which I really liked. And I automatically think, even though they're very different filmmakers, um, that's something I think David Lynch taps into is the unconscious, the subconscious, what we're thinking and feeling and sort of burying and cinema allows us to confront some of the social evils or just the internal struggles that we face. Uh, his films really just confront the dark side of humanity in a way that was definitely seen as groundbreaking at the time. Uh, he started out making silent films, of course, and exp- you know, explored a lot of the theories of Nietzsche and Freud. And it's, it's still in question about his personal life growing up in terms of him fleeing the Nazi regime. I know some people go back and forth on uh, some of the things he's mentioned in interviews as being factual or accurate. And I love that. I love that. It's like, you just can't pin it down. Like the, the myth. Um, I, I, I mentioned that uh, I, I got to take that, the, um, elective in, in the film class and the 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 professor is was a uh, Patrick McGilligan who wrote a book about Fritz Lang so we had two oh. Fritz Lang movies in 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 that in that class but yeah they it's I think it's fascinating that he was able that he, got, that he was making silent movies and then he made the transition to sound and then yeah. he was making these movies with his wife um his second wife well, his first wife died under mysterious circumstances mm-hmm. with a gunshot and so we're still you know that's still kind of a mystery then he marries uh thea von harbo and she stays in germany and he gets out and he like yeah just that whole thing though of like well, yeah we're just never gonna know what <laughs> what happened <laughs> I want to see that movie though. <laughs> right? Who would be cast? I wonder. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That'd be interesting. But yeah, I maybe mean, maybe David Lynch could play. Ooh. Maybe David Lynch could be Fritz Long. That would be. Wow. I, I would enjoy a that. monocle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be <laughs> that would be really cool. Now I think about it. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, Long was uh, one of Hitchcock's favorite directors. I can see why. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you, you kind of look at how his career evolved and certainly something like Ministry of Fear is kind of like those Hitchcockian thrillers of the wrong man, wrongfully accused. And we're also going to talk about that in regards, you know, to Fury. Uh, and he, <laughs> Lung also took credit for a book ending to uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the classic German expressionist film. And he said that he wrote the It's All a Dream ending, which everybody <laughs> loves and still goes, oh no, when that happens in, in modern movies. But I, yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about his silent work uh, to start and then dive a little bit into the American noir films that he made. But I have a feeling a lot of those will be saved for later uh, when we do a sequel episode. But what, w- what was your first encounter in general with this director? 
uh, what was the first film you saw and just really responded to? Was well, it M? It, and we we watched Metropolis and M in the class, and we okay, watched together. Metropolis first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nice. Because okay. we were going we were going through uh, film kind of in an overview uh, chronologically. So we we watched Birth of a Nation, we watched Metropolis of the in kind of in the silent era, and then um, so that so yeah, so Metropolis was the first one, but but M is just one of my favorite movies of all time and again I mean and that's his first sound film and I just I can't get over how well he uses sound and doesn't use sound and then too like I think about it um I think blackmail was one of Alfred Hitchcock's like they got yeah. sound within like the the middle of that mm -hmm. that movie and if you compare something like that to M it's just like wow it it seems like he knows what he like long knows what he's doing and Alfred Hitchcock is figuring it out like it's not just it's not all quite there but so that was just amazing but I mean with we can we can go we can start with Metropolis that you want to start there yeah yeah, yeah I'm yeah. I mean silent films for me are still a little bit of a struggle because as a fan of podcasts and audiobooks clearly I like to listen to people talk a lot so <laughs> When I don't get that in a movie, sometimes I struggle just a little bit. And this is something I would greatly prefer to experience on a big screen. I imagine I will at some point in my lifetime to just immerse myself completely uh, on a big screen. But this is this is the one that put him on the map for 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 a reason. So I thought it would be important to start here. And, you know, obviously he made quite a few silent features before this, including the sort of epic Dr. Mabuse, the gambler, which I just, you know, I, I wanted to watch, but I also saw how long it was too. And I'm like, mm, I'll get to it. And, and, I, and I realize it's technically a sequel to the Testament of Dr. Mabuse, but, you know, I, I mean, just, there wouldn't be Brazil or Dark City or Blade Runner if it wasn't for Metropolis. It's one of the most influential science fiction films of all time. I don't think people were prepared for, for what this film brought to cinema. And, uh, you know, it draws the, the, the art direction just it, it's so spectacular and it draws influence from so many different things. Uh, you know, like Bauhaus and Cubist and Futurist design. Uh, and, and you just kind of marvel at some of the images here uh, throughout and just and just kind of go, wow, you, you don't. <laughs> yeah, and always... all of those like images are still kind of used today. I feel like yeah. that, like you you watch when as you're watching Metropolis and you're seeing kind of the the scope but the you know the the city itself like just how many things that set themselves in the future are still using this movie and and this yeah this art traction all of this stuff as their reference point and it's about to be like a hundred years old like if you you know <laughs> within the next decade it'll have been it'll have have been a hundred and we're but we're still like that's the future <laughs> yeah exactly and I couldn't help but think of the, you know, everybody marching in oh, to yeah. uh, work in the machine. I, I, our, our mutual acquaintance, Colin Suter, 
loves the film as do I, Joe versus the volcano. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, yep, that opening looks familiar. Uh, I I love that. And I love when filmmakers do pay homage to something like this and you can see why. Uh, and it's just interesting historically when you think about the, the fact that a certain horrible German dictator was a big fan uh, <laughs> Even though this is an anti-authoritarian movie, uh, you know he he must have just viewed the class discrepancy depicted in the film in the wrong way, uh, and just loved the idea of the lower class uprising to take out the upper class, uh, and and yeah, that's and it's weird though because I feel like Long tried to separate himself politically, and just mm-hmm. you know he didn't want that to i mean he couldn't control what audiences obviously take from watching his films but i don't think that was necessarily his intention he just wanted to tell a great story yeah instead of commenting on the times it just sort of happened organically that way uh people just watched this and were overwhelmed by its story and visuals and just kind of took it differently than was intended uh but you know one thing one certain motif that definitely comes up in a lot of his work is the mob uprising mm-hmm. you know i can't help but think about that as being something that we experience i have to give credit to um mike groust over at mikegroust.com uh who has a very straightforward website old school kind of love it and he, you know, he points out the recurring theme of the manhunt uh, in M. And certainly all, a lot of his films, some of which I haven't seen yet, really do have um, just this depiction of the public being stirred up intensely and, you know, trying to close in on a killer they think is the source of all evil. Um, and, and here we really do have the lower class coming to uh, destroy the upper class in a way that's just visually stunning and striking. And uh, the the automaton that is ultimately created is just, oof, that image alone, I think everybody will remember. And it's probably why it's always on the cover of any sort of uh, DVD art or the poster, because it's just so striking as everything is really. Yeah, and it, it goes like, to go back to kind of some comparisons with Hitchcock too, that he, that Fritz Lang was really a, a perfectionist. And mm. so, and, as, and, and especially with these, with these silent movies, how he, you know, would do things over and over again, or he want, you know, it was, it was, I'm sure he wouldn't have disagreed with calling, you know, comparing actors to, to cattle or anything, but um, when Brigitte Helm is being burned, like, she was complaining of really being burned by fire that was close to her. And, and when, you know, so, something I, I had read was more that he was just like, oh, this doesn't look real enough. Like we need more flames. <laughs> like it needs to be bigger. <laughs> so wow. Just thinking of how it was going to look in, in the movie, not how it was looking in real life. So he had, he had an eye for what he, you know, what he wanted to see and he didn't, and then he didn't really like Metropolis. And then it kind of came out like at the time it was kind of mixed reviews. I can't, 
Oh, it was yeah, it was not that. a success yeah. at the time, which is just it's yeah. one of those that slowly built a following and slowly crept up in people's minds as being a substantial work of art. I the the version I saw was uh I think it was Kino Lorber that put out the the release. I'm not sure, but it does have one of those, you know, kind of overbearing scores. I I guess for the time that it was appropriate and certainly you know it's not like it took me out of it or made, or felt weird but it was just it was so bombastic uh i i'd just be curious to watch this with a, a different score underneath it all uh i know giorgio Moroder released a truncated version with a soundtrack by rock artists including freddie mercury lover boy and adam ant in 1984 <laughs> yeah colin colin showed me he has a a a, a warped version of it but he was showing me a, a little bit of it and so that was it was kind of interesting though to see how well it it fit and metropolis especially because of all the like just grand scope of all the some of yeah. the sets and the designs and stuff it it it's still i think it's a it it still holds holds up well as a as a silent film but that is something that it sometimes if it's a a score that repeats itself or is you know it rubs you the wrong way it can be hard to get through an entire film and um that's why that's why it it would you know be great to see this on the big screen to 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 see it and it in like a huge setting but also um you know if it were at the music box and and they had you know dennis with the oh, live accompaniment by the organ man. you could make it through it no problem yeah i just looked sure. it up and it was the berlin radio symphony orchestra okay well I not think, too shabby then <laughs> yeah no they're i mean obviously they're yeah. great i just was kind of like boom, like uh. every, every little instance um you know, and, and, you know it's a little long i'm, I'm not going to deny that i i think you could trim it a little bit tighten it up but you know i know that uh some sub subsequent footage was added later on once it was restored it has just you could i'm sure there's a whole book on, on the entire movie and how many iterations it's been through uh and changes have been made over the years but it's obviously one of the great achievements of the silent era and you kind of just watch it in awe even if, yeah, you kind of, you, you know where the story is going because so many science fiction films went on to basically just do this with a budget or sound, <laughs> more or less. And yet it's still powerful. It's still effective. And I still think, uh, you know, just to start yourself out in the world of, of silent films, this is a great place to to kick off uh, with Lang and what he brings to the table in terms of visuals so yeah and I always think it's interesting to I mean with sometimes with with silent silent movies too I think there's a it it's really interesting to see then an international <laughs> silent mm. movie right because mm -hmm. we just kind of see the the universal I don't know themes and and things that even like I mean, because how much could we really relate to the United States in in the early twenties? But then to go even into a different country and just see those 
those ideas. And since it's set in the future, it's it's almost like no, you know, no country or all countries. So I think that um, Metropolis is is really uh, is really good for for that too as a way of kind of taking yourself into a unique silent movie that is just timeless. Timeless is the right word indeed. I I'm also curious. Obviously, Wikipedia is not always accurate. I'm I'm just curious if this will come into fruition or not. But uh, the creator of Mr. Robot, Sam Esmail, is set to adapt the film into a mini series. So, oh. hmm, curious. <laughs> hmm. Just want to see, like, what would this look like now? And you know, certainly there have been plenty of films that pay homage and pop culture has embraced it and music videos have taken footage outright from it uh like yeah what what would this story look like today will be very interesting if and when that does happen but this is this is the template people this is you know you got films that feature you know surveillance and dystopia and the future and uprising and all those things that we've come to love in the science fiction genre. So uh, I'm sure by now you've seen it and loved it. And there's a lot more to be said about it in the future, I'm sure. But I want to talk about M. Talk <laughs> about M. Only a few years after that, we have what I consider to be his masterpiece. And Agreed. it's funny, I hadn't seen it in 20 years, which is wild. I, I also saw this in a college class uh, a film class of course and yeah i mean it, it's like you're t when you get the syllabus you're like yes okay citizen kane psycho the usual and mm -hmm. you know m is thrown in there so we get uh, uh you know a little dose of uh, german expressionism and things like that but uh, again when, when i saw it at the time it was in a classroom and maybe i was a little distracted <laughs> but this uh this is one of the all-time great films in, in every way. I understand, you know, why people put it in such high regard. Uh, it was inspired by an actual case in Germany and traces the treacherous path of a child killer and the panic that he sort of sets into motion all across Berlin. The police are after him. The mob is after him. And, you know, the police are, are, are very active. So, of course, they're affecting the mob's business. Uh, and uh, yeah, and even people just, you know, just living on the street are getting on board and acting as allies. But, um, you know, all of Germany is under surveillance to find this child killer. And there's just this palpable sense of tension, even when you don't see murders on screen. It's just in the air. Uh, and this is just obviously another greatly influential work which calls to mind the serial killer procedural dramas of uh, David Fincher. I, David Fincher has to be a fan. <laughs> um, you know, watching something like Zodiac today, it's hard not to think of M or Bong Joon-ho's work like Mother and uh, Memories of Murder or um, Kurosawa's High and Low, I would say. They're all <laughs> in love with this movie. Uh, but oddly enough, as I was watching this, I'm like, because I also do have a Nightmare on Elm Street poster hanging uh, on my wall in my living room. I was thinking of Nightmare on Elm Street a little bit. It's so, it was a strange thing to think about, but it opens with kids singing a nursery rhyme 
and just the idea of the town serial killer running amok and parents not being able to do anything. I was like, wow, I, I, I should have looked up to see if Wes Craven is a huge fan. I would imagine he must be a huge fan of M. Uh, but what can you say about the remarkable performance from Peter Laurie? Yeah, I know. And I had, you know, I was kind of at, at this point, I think I was familiar with just his 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 films in the, you know, in in that he made in the US and then almost as like a caricature in, in Looney Tunes cartoons. So then to see <laughs> him playing like this really creepy guy, but also I, I don't know, he's just he just mesmerized. Yeah, he's just he's he's I don't know too many people that could walk that like tightrope that he's yeah. that he's watching that he's that he's walking and 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 then again and then again like this is a this is 1931 and it's you know in in Germany so we're in you know all the political stuff that that's happening there like it's just but it's still just so suspenseful and scary like the you know we what you can imagine about the, what's happening to the the children like I think is far worse than anything I mean and they couldn't yeah. like they obviously couldn't show anything like that but I don't even think that would work I think just how they portray that the the children are lured and then they're gone and then you see a couple of you know the I mean the balloons sometimes and then and then oh. there's the haunting whistling of in the hall of the mountain king tune like every time I hear that song I just immediately, I always think of M. That's where yeah. my mind goes. Yeah, it's funny when that's used in um, the social network at one point. I'm like, man, I can't, I can't, it's hard to separate it now with from, from this movie. I'm just like, that. It, that is the ultimate use because it's so subtle. Uh, and, you know, uh, the audience is kind of asked at one point not to demonize this child killer. And I don't know if that was a revolutionary thing for the time. I would think so. Uh, j just because, you know, we're, we're so used to that. Okay. Well, he's obviously the bad guy, the villain here, let's get him. And yet he's, he sort of steps back in the end and allows him to have that speech that I was, again, I know I've seen it before, but I was just so floored by it all over again and kind of moved and, it made me think of certainly some of the, you know, revenge films that uh, the, what's, what's that trilogy? I mean, I guess Old Boy, uh, Lady Vengeance, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, that director Park Chan-wook, like certainly he's kind of deconstructing the revenge film and sort of examining the futility of an angry mob coming to get the the quote-unquote bad guy and how you're not gonna have any catharsis either as a viewer or, or as a person involved you know and i think this is the origin of, of doing that with with how things play out um when once they finally track down hans here uh, but i mean i'm also astonished by how he chooses to cut out sound completely mm -hmm. yeah with no score uh, and I mean, yeah, that's him transitioning out of silent film and then using sound when he feels it's necessary, but also allowing us complete silence in some instances where it was just like, 
ooh, even this is creepy and effective. Just yeah. that choice. Yeah. And I I was um, watching one of the kind of the criterion extras and they were saying that this was, well, and he's, I guess, Long said he invented it, but <laughs> the, <laughs> the sound bridge. So he was, uh-huh. you know, but even, you know, but I mean, even if he didn't invent it, there couldn't have been that many people who were doing like this was just such a new thing to have sound, you know, I mean, to be clever enough, I think, to just think like, okay, well, we'll we'll take this sound from the end of this scene and it'll go into the the next scene and that'll be that'll that'll be the 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 guide, you know, the guide to just like move move things along. And, and then all of just the editing, yeah, back and forth when the the police are are kind of talking about how they're going to handle this and the underworld guys are saying how we got it yeah I mean it's just it's just so interesting like that's just so fascinating and there's a couple of things of of humor in there in there too (laughs) yeah when they're arguing about the color of her hood yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) green red green I was just like oh I'm it's nice to laugh for a bit here yeah Uh, but you know, then there's some, there's even some like tracking shots in here. And yes. there's like the, and the wide shot when Peter Laurie's character is like running through the street and then, you know, they oh, get man. the network of the, the beggars, they call them to, to be kind of the eyes and ears on, on the street. Like when they've kind of like almost got him cornered and that like, I mean, and then they pull up and you're really high up, like all of that yeah. stuff. It's like, we take, I mean, we just take it all for granted and some of it's not even real, but it's, it's not like they had the equipment to do all of that very easily. And the cameras must've weighed, you know, four, four times what they do. You know, it's just like, wow, that you'd be like, yep, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get this done. It's graceful at times, the camera work and in, in, in ways that really surprised me. And those are highlights that you mentioned for sure, where I was just like, Oh wow, what a deliberate and amazing choice for that era. And it's like I always I always kind of do that and you know, even going back to my film class when at one point the professor pauses Citizen Kane and kind of goes, "Well, this is the point where Orson Welles developed the idea of the low angle shot by having the camera in the, you know, on the floor looking up at a character to make them seem taller than they actually are." And yeah, there's you know those origin stories of inventiveness throughout that period and you're kind of just going yeah well look at all the things that they did here that just must have been shocking and groundbreaking and even just what this means morally and ethically and you know things that happen in this film do feel like a critique of the era uh in in some ways of like just oh we're 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 out to go after this one person because that's that's the answer we'll get our catharsis that way but you know and it's 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 interesting how the criminal underworld is presented and the police and all these factions you start thinking about them and how they all play uh, a role and how things ultimately play out because yeah when 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 he lets loose and finally gets his big speech it's amazing it's like this raw volcanic eruption you know yeah. it's like pure uh shock and in, in, in ways that he's you know trying to defend himself in a way and defend his actions but he's also like i can't control what i'm doing and i'm sorry and more or less i don't know if he outright says that but 
it's just that's 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 the moment where as much as i love everything else before it it adds a whole other layer with laurie uh doing what he does there yeah and and he's pointing out the hypocrisy yes it's not like he's being put on quote unquote trial by a bunch of people who have you know shouldn't be casting stones at him either so he's you know he and he does kind of defend it that you know i in the moment in the moments when these things are happening i don't remember and i can't help Mm. myself you all are committing crimes that you you know can 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 stop yourself from doing and not you know and i'm not i'm not trying to like that's true let him off the hook or anything right (laughs) right he's still a criminal but it's just kind of he's pointing out this hypocrisy of like you're not the cops i <laughs> either like this is not this is not law this is un this is un you know un chaotic this is chaos as well yeah i just i just wonder if this is one of the very first examples of trying to put a you know a level of humanity onto somebody that obviously we 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 wouldn't sympathize with in any capacity for what they've done and yet they're human beings you know and that's something that i i certainly struggle with you know even when i know horrible things happen in the world and then we find out who may or may not be responsible and who is responsible and all that and you kind of because i took this whole class on neuroethics and how the brain works in the criminal mind and it's sort of one of those classes that makes you overthink like, well, did this person do it or was the brain the, the, you know, the reason that it happened? And, you know, he talks about that within this movie. It's just like, uh, I'm ill, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, I don't know what to do. And I th- also wonder at the same time, well, is he being this way to manipulate them to some capacity, yeah. you know? And I love that you don't really get an answer and you don't, and you don't get as a, an audience the cathartic courtroom scene you don't get that here it just sort of mm-hmm. ends right yeah. with the with the with the the, the um the, the the mothers the the victims uh you know and i'm just kind of like oh because <laughs> i'm expecting yeah. some sort of sound resolution to everything and you don't get that yeah we kind of want we want to be taken care of at the end of the movie we want someone to like reassure us and and it doesn't happen although um in the so in in this uh uh feature i was watching on the criterion channel they were showing some of the french version of the film have you Mm. seen any of any of that or haven't i know there yeah there are other takes of this material done by other directors too if i'm not mistaken Yeah, yeah well this is well this is this they um this is a mostly dubbed version in French, although Peter Lorre went back and and did some of his own um, like scenes again in hmm. in in French, and they're not That's really sure. That's gonna be fascinating. Yeah, I gotta playing, watch that. Yeah, it's 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 I I saw it on the Criterion Channel, um, okay. so it's there it's it's there as as of this recording, but it, it was really interesting because. And they they were kind of showing the German, you know, Long's version and this French version, who may or may not be. But they were like when he's making his speech, it's it's clearly shot in a different way. But then the ending, it, the, the, they 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 do give it a a 
French fairy tale ending, I guess, is all I can say is that they they wrap it up a lot. Um, yeah, it just it ends differently than than our kind of woeful, um, you know, long ending mm. of, of M. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, I can't like I'm like, wonder if I had seen that version if I would even like, I, I, I think I might not like it as much. I think I might've just been like, oh, okay, well that's over with. I don't have to think about the moral ambiguity here anymore. So that's done. It, it reminds me a little bit of the compromise, you know, going back to Metropolis that Terry Gilliam ran into with Brazil and just like how the studio is like, no, we need a happy ending. We, <laughs> we don't want this dark, like, the we're all screwed the world is ending and you know you can't control the the machine the regime uh taking away your mind and your bliss and you know at the same time you can look at that ending of brazil as well he's living in his own head and he is happy to some degree too uh but it's just like there's yeah it's always interesting to watch other people take on different material and and putting a spin on it, even if obviously the original, the source is ultimately what I think is, it proves to be uh, the masterpiece. M stands for masterpiece. Yeah, M stands for masterpiece. And even Long liked M, like he considered- Thank goodness. So, yeah, <laughs> it's always good. I mean, I, I could see, you know, the, the perfectionist or today we see people going back, like, you know, talking about Ridley Scott, everyone, got, no one's ever satisfied with their work, right? They you know, if I could go back and redo this, I'm a special edition that, and I'm going to tinker, tinker, tinker. But um, I, I, I feel like, okay, well, if, he, if he's not going to give Metropolis a pass, at least if he'll give, um, you know, it's, it's, it's due, like, yep, that's the movie I'm going to be remembered for. I'll take it because that's, I, I think, yes, M stands for masterpiece. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of movies that begin with M, even uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has recently said, that yeah magnolia is too long i <laughs> i could have trimmed that big time it's like it's funny when that happens too it's like you think once the movie's out that's that's you know i'd be satisfied to have a movie out and i'd you know maybe in the end though i'd go well yeah you could i could have changed that or maybe had a different take or whatever but and yeah, maybe that's, that's just the nature of a director's job. Like, you know, you, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, maybe you just can't like punch out of it, you know, like I, for, and some, sometimes I don't, I don't get it. And I have like little patience for like, oh, I, I want to go back and do this. But then, you know, thinking about like, if that's your, if that's your job throughout the process is to be like moving it forward and little changes. And what if we do this? And what if we do that? Then just because it has to come out or a studio saying, you know, that's it, we're done. You have to, you have to turn this over that maybe the direct, you know, directors just are still like, okay, I'm giving it over now, but I could still, they've still got 15 things in their head. Like, well, if I could do three more things, I'd change this, this, and this. So. Well, I even had that experience with licorice pizza because I don't know, maybe I should never watch trailers ever again. I have a couple of friends who don't, but I saw the licorice pizza trailer and I was eagerly anticipating about four shots that aren't in the actual movie. And I was oh. kind of like, Hmm. <laughs> so I go back to the trailer. And I'm like, I, I wish I could, I mean, obviously maybe he'll put out a Blu-ray and there'll be deleted scenes who knows, or however 
the release ultimately is. But I, I feel like there's certain things that um, primed my brain <laughs> and then I don't get them. And I'm kind of like, huh, okay. Well, I mean, I think he, I think he's kind of known to do that to some degree. Like there's definite moments in his other trailers that don't make it into the final film. And it's like, it's like a different, mini version to you know sell people on a movie i realized that so mm-hmm. it's a whole other experience but at the same time i'm like where's bradley cooper breaking mirrors <laughs> in the in the movie it's it's saved for the closing credits and i guess that's fine anyway um <clears throat> i want to talk a little bit about the testament of dr mabuse um i don't have as much to say i it, it, well, we have a crossover character, so this is my we do we do seeing this this, this movie, and I was I was just like oh, Inspector Loman, yay! <laughs> <There you are. laughs> exactly. No, that was a, that was a highlight for sure, and yeah, it's one that I'm going to watch again. I certainly really liked it, and I certainly found it unbelievably eerie and creepy in spots, for for good reason. Like um, Mabuse is kind of at times like this eerie ghost like spirit that you know at one point he says something like humanity's soul must be shaking to its very depth frightened by unfathomable and seemingly senseless crimes no one whose object ob- only objective is to inspire fear and terror the ultimate purpose of crime is to establish the endless empire of crime like what holy cow <laughs> that's some dark stuff um but yeah no he's i love the idea of him as this sort of spectral terror that may or may not kind of exist in the minds of people maybe he's just this idea you know and the opening of this film oh i it shows him again a man trapped in a building trying to escape mm-hmm. you know calling back to m but it is yeah it's kind of accompanied by this this insane score and sound design that sounds like neubauten industrial music or something that was just kind of like whoa this is this is heavy this is this is not what i was expecting but i'm still kind of intoxicated by this setup um and then eventually this 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 character ends up in a, a, in, a in a mental institution and sort of uh we, we, we basically learn about different characters and certainly the police procedural element and trying to figure out what's going on and why it's happening and how does Mabuse sort of play into everything that's taken place. And then there's just sort of a almost like um, Joker-like sense of chaos at the end and just destroying something just to destroy it and sort of perpetuate this empire of crime, which, uh, yeah, I, I was kind of enveloped by this movie. I, I wonder how it would play if I'd seen the, the silent film, uh, Dr. Mabuse, the gambler, which, uh, again, very long, <laughs> but yeah, maybe I'll and get I, to that. I have seen, I have seen those, uh, cause they're book, but it was, but that was, that was many years ago. So I don't remember uh the the gambler part too well but again all of this stuff is kind of coming of its time like the the mabuse the dr mabuse and the gambler was more out of the germany of of world war 
one that was mm -hmm. creating like a big class divide, which I'm sure you can't imagine what that's like. So the, <laughs> the poor got poorer and some, then there were like these nouveau riche um, Germans. And so Dr. Mabuse in, in that was kind of a, um, was more of the, the nouveau riche. And then some things I read was that this Dr. Mabuse is supposed to be a Hitler, you know, a Hitler character. Yep. It's just I can like, see that. How can you like? It's just like I just can't imagine that you're. You know, I mean, right? We all we all are. You know, where people make movies about what they think, you know, of of the political times that they're living in. But like, he's that's some heavy stuff. That yep, I'm I'm my my villain here is is Hitler, and yeah, it's just this. So Professor Baum, who works at the at the mental institution, like just all that stuff in his office when he's with Dr. Mabuse, and what's going, I mean, it was just like, it was almost like a vampire movie. To yeah, me. no, it's totally like a horror movie. I was thinking, yeah, I was, and it kind of uh, unnerved me. <laughs> and I'm sure that's the intention in a way that I wasn't anticipating yet. I'm like, well, look at, look, look at this ghostly Dr. Mabuse and, Yet it's still, for its time, unbelievably scary and done in you know a way. Yeah, that cinematographer Fritz Arno Wagner. He's uh, wow. Uh, I, I he he. But again, like we've talked about it before, he he. <laughs> Longwood and Dangerous Crew, and there were certain moments, especially that that um, explosion at the factory. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. He, he he safety was not the top priority uh well and we have again. another kind of anytime i kind of see a flood flooding scene which, yes. which happens here and, and too, i'm just always like oh boy he had he had no uh he, he was not concerned about safety <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure that it was just like well i want the water to do this i don't really care if it's dangerous <laughs> yeah I mean, what did you think of the the gang member Thomas and uh, and Lily, like that to me felt like it belonged in a different mood. Like I understand that there's kind of a subplot and they're heavily involved in what's taking place. I guess maybe the love story. I mean, it's not really like, in, you know, at the forefront or anything. It's just, I always felt like, hmm, this doesn't seem like it fits at times. Yeah, what, I felt like that was, yeah, I mean, the love story there was, I think, more just, I don't know, I kind of thought that that was our, that was just a, a device to get beyond, because there's, like, Thomas is is part of this gang who, you yeah. know, which of course, like, we've, we've seen this a lot of times, and I don't know how many times this was done, you know, before this, but that this gang is getting their orders for the 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 you know missions or their you know operatives from this man behind a curtain and so i think mm. we just i, I kind of just saw it as like well this is just a device to get like we want somebody to uncover what's what's going on and i guess it it's i guess it's not going to come from um inspector loman or you know they're both going to be kind of figuring it out to together so yeah yeah, and certainly that's where some of the, uh, yeah, the tension sets in, like you mentioned, with the flooding and them trying to escape everything that's happening in that place. And, you know, they do play a role, obviously, in, in, in how things play out. I think I was just more 
into yeah professor bomb and everything else surrounding them uh yeah and, and certainly it, it, i wouldn't say it felt long or anything it's just one of those movies too that i i have to watch it again knowing what i'm in for and also uh to absorb because you know there's there's kind of a lot going on mm-hmm. you know involving different people that you sort of have to keep up with and and strangely enough uh before i even clicked on the the uh, Wikipedia page for the film, and I mentioned the Joker. Of course, it says the 2009 or the 2008 film, The Dark Knight, features a version of the Joker that was inspired by Mabuse. I'm like, oh. of course, of course, <laughs> that chaos, man. <laughs> you know, blowing up that hospital, right? And and yeah, and he blows up a factory with with uh, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's character in that film as well so okay now the correlation is complete uh (laughs) i was just something i thought of and then oh yeah i guess that makes sense but i do want to see all these films together since i did find dr mabuse as an entity as a character is just really creepy and compelling and interesting uh yeah yeah, the idea is we're seeing no i'm just saying i I, I think everybody should check it out Mm -hmm. for sure yeah and there was another there's another kind of uh, series of, of films of the the spiders. Um, yes, which also like if you like the so that was one of Long's uh, silent movies, but it's also kind of the the gang acts, uh, you know, this underworld, this criminal gang is is the spiders. And that's another like I, I could see mm. that the gang in, in this testament of Dr. Mabuse kind of reminded me of the, the spider gang as well yeah i i would love to see those films and all of dr mabuse at the music box yeah yeah but what Um, so i i i couldn't find i had a take on the ending that i think was a little (laughs) was a little dark i guess maybe (laughs) maybe because m's you know m's ending is is a little dark as well but i couldn't really find anything to support my um bleak ending uh idea so it the, felt bleak that's for okay. sure i kind of thought that hoffmeister is now mabuse like i felt like he got taken over and that mabuse wasn't i gone i don't think we we don't explicitly see that but i think that's what it's implying okay I, I, I wouldn't say you're wrong. <laughs> I, I just, just don't think we get confirmation anything. on it. Yeah, yeah. I Because I'm like, mm, I don't know. Dr. Mabuse, you can't, he doesn't seem like he, like, that That seemed too easy to just. <laughs> yeah. Just well, I, 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 again, and we're going to get to a film that clearly has a different type of ending than what we're used to with the other films we've talked about, because well, and, uh, Metropolis more or less has a happy ending or a compromise yeah. between, you know, the head and the heart and uh, and all that and the hands. <laughs> so yeah, that I'm not saying like all his endings are, you know, bleak and depressing and and things like that. But it's it, I I yeah I think you may be onto something with that. That this is just a spirit that will always be. A part of somebody in some way mm-hmm. and it would make sense that like yeah he was sort of transferred almost like 
you know, and the exorcist being possessed, uh, the, the spirit ultimately she has to find another host in some yeah. way. And that's a creepy thought. It's certainly one that lingers when you're watching this film. And it's certainly one I'm very much looking forward to seeing again. Uh, we're going to talk about his first English language debut from 1936 called Fury. And as somebody who really loves Spencer Tracy, I was like, okay, bring it. <laughs> you know, I was kind of uh, just curious uh, because we always, we do have this a lot. We do have, you know, a lot of filmmakers from Europe coming in to, you know, tell their story. I mean, and, and with mixed results sometimes. And I'm always curious to see, well, what happens once they come over here and have to deal with the studio system and things. And this, this has a great setup, in my opinion. I think uh, uh, Spencer Tracy's Joe Wilson gets accused of a crime he didn't commit. And when he's imprisoned, some an angry mob an once angry again mob. Uh, decides to take justice into their own hands by burning down the jail that he's in. So uh, he's left for dead and assumed dead, of course, but uh, he did happen to sneak away and then sort of works behind the scenes to bring his killers to justice with a little help from his, um, his two brothers. And this is very expressive and, you know, again, using graceful tracking shots and some rather satiric, satirical montages. At one point, he uh, dissolves to clucking chickens uh, <laughs> to make these, you know, the angry mob and the rioters uh, look like they're, you know, out of their minds and not thinking rationally, which is very true in this case, because he is innocent after all. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I, he was sort of commenting a lot on America and the lynching aspect of how things play out, uh, especially midway here. I, you know, I, I just thought it would be an interesting opportunity because, you know, Fritz Lang going to America and how he's absorbing our culture while still infused into German culture. And, 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 you know, he essentially made these kind of B movies, quote unquote, in America, and they're all sort of noir in nature. Uh, and I, I, I really did enjoy this movie. I think again, though, the ending is a compromise and I don't think that's his voice. I don't think he, Oh no. And it's not, it, it's not how, it's not how the, he, he wanted it to end. He, he didn't want the, the happy ending that the studio required. And also, and I thought like, wow, I could not, I couldn't even, <laughs> I don't know if uh, this would have happened in 1936, but he, he wanted Joe Wilson to be black. Yeah. I don't know if the studios would have been I mean, ready they for that. But, but, you know, we're talking about like, you know, uh, Fritz Lang goes goes Hollywood like yeah. that he that he would you know that you would go into the studio system thinking that that I mean that that would have been a very interesting movie not not to take anything away from Spencer Tracy but um, like wow that really would have sent a, a message but it's it's it is interesting the seeing all the different 
mobs and you know we saw one with M where they were even the mob is going after somebody who is committing crimes and now we see here somebody this mob is going after somebody who didn't commit a crime that it just it almost it it, it you know mobs are mobs will be mobs and yeah you can't stop them but I also got I, I watched um assault on precinct 13 for the Ooh. first time this year and and this when the mob is approaching the jail and everything leading up to that like it's scary like scary like it's intent like it that's suspenseful like i he, yeah he i was all that up i was on the edge of my seat for sure and so i was even thinking about what happened earlier this year in january the yeah the mob storming the capital uh and yeah like any just feeling so bad for that puppy. Yeah. It was also the same puppy from Wizard of Oz. Oh, really? Oh, exact wow. one. Yeah. Oh, poor Rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we do get to see Rainbow's offspring, but still, that's uh, mm-hmm. just knowing that Rainbow perished in the fire was like, oh. But, you know, that yeah, that's the dark touch that, that Long brings to his work. And, you know, he's kind of uncompromising in certain instances here in just uh, showcasing, yeah, like how uh, just people together just really get up in arms and they don't even have, they don't need proof. They just have their emotions and they have their rage. They have their fury, <laughs> you know? And certainly Joe kind of takes that on to some degree where he wants to, he wants revenge now, you know, he's sort of absorbing their energy for this need for methodical revenge. And I, 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 yeah, I feel like tacking on that reconciliation between uh, Spencer Tracy's character and his girlfriend at the end rings false and makes it a lesser work, but I still think it has incredible moments that we've talked about, especially when the mom, mom, <laughs> the mob storms <laughs> the prison. There are moms sure. in, in the mobs. And also oh, yeah, just there how, are moms. <laughs> how all that information travels along, right? I mean, and this mm. is what we see on the internet, but, you know, somebody, some one person calls one person and then, you know, they're not like, yeah. you just kind of see the message get distorted along the way, which I, I, I really liked that sequence of like, of how it all built up. It wasn't just that the mob just suddenly appeared, but you kind of saw like, oh, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell my wife and now she's going to tell the neighbor and then it's going to, you know, that, that it, it, how it's getting passed around. Cause it's just like, yep, this is how lots of misinformation gets, gets out there. And and then, and then the the idea of the, you know, the the sheriff is trying to call the governor in for backup, and then oh right, they, yeah. they at first they're going to send in the national guard to help, and then you know an advisor decides, oh, that's this is an election year, it's not going to look good for us to send send them in, so they're on their own. It's just like what, but it's also like no, oh, this all this stuff is still still happening today. Some things just, never just, change. Yep, <laughs> that's my fury. It's just like we yeah. haven't learned any lessons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's oh. 
it's 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 heartbreaking at times it really is and it's just kind of one of those things where uh you understand why you know joe is feeling what he's feeling after practically you know almost being murdered by a by an angry mob and he didn't even get a fair trial it's like that's the one thing too you sort of you just get angry at people (laughs) watching this movie like you you don't even have factual proof and you're automatically assuming that this is the guy and the sheriff is of course telling them that and there's this beautiful uh, edited series of close-ups of faces when the jail is actually burning down that uh, I thought was really well done that they're done at um, these really great angles and cut very quickly so yeah it's just it it really does capture the shock of something like this taking place and the fact that it continues to take place is all the more infuriating uh you know and, and like a lot of his stories it just it, again it, it contains just destructive forces that are out of control and how you can't escape some sort of inevitable guilt that joe is carrying when he thinks ah I can get my comeuppance now, <laughs> you know, like he thinks that. And yet at the same time, he knows that he can't go through with that. And yeah, that's uh, yeah. All of it plays, plays out well, but yeah, again, I have a feeling we'll come across this in subsequent uh, films of his, especially a lot of the noirs were done in, in, in America. The, the majority of them are. And I have a feeling we'll, we'll come across endings that, you know aren't as satisfying as the stuff he's done before i do have to bring up the big heat in just it being uh one of the all-time great film noirs and it's one i want to discuss at length in the future for sure have you seen the big heat before i have seen the big heat and the big heat is in my is in my book of a it should be <laughs> yep yep yeah um, that one's very dark very heavy uh a a lot going on in that in that story uh so yeah i mean again fury is just as ferocious at times and i hope people do make the time to seek that out along with the big heat it's yeah just just the fact that the big heat starts with a suicide kind of mm, plays a little different once you know you know what happened in his personal life mm-hmm. yeah i'm just kind of like hmm i don't know what to make of him as a person <laughs> yeah yeah this is i really don't this is he's definitely an example of time helping you to separate the art from the artist yes yep and you know you can you you can overlook i think more things when it's not somebody in in your contemporary life i guess Mm. yeah well i mean just to sort of wrap things up yeah he was from what i've read just not the most pleasant director to work with Mm -hmm. uh i'm i'm think of a couple of cases of actors saying yeah it, it was i think um henry fonda yeah i think he said yeah, it was one of the, one of the worst experiences he's ever had in his acting career was working with him. Uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to checking out that film they made together called "You Only Live Once." But yeah, okay. So he was 
often disliked, not a nice man to work on set with and yelled and screamed and probably, you know, emotionally abused people to get performances out of them. And yet at the same time, I can't deny his work as an artist and it being significant and mm-hmm. monumental and uh, groundbreaking, all those adjectives that we use a lot when we talk about classic cinema. And I am really grateful to have rewatched M a couple decades later because I can safely say it is one of the all time great films. What would you say in summation, Carrie, in, in general about uh, this director? I think, yeah, I mean, I again, I just think his, his story is so fascinating of when he wrote, like wrote that he was so skilled at silent movies and sound movies. And he was able to make that, that leap. And, and, yeah. and also, I mean, just the, so something, I don't think we mentioned, but he his his mother was Jewish and she converted mm. to Catholicism. So he was he was raised Catholic, um, but he was you know when when the Nazis were rising to power and he was making movies and the propaganda machine was kind of limit you know they they banned uh, the Testament of of Dr. Mabuse even though right. some of the Nazis liked it they still had to had to ban it. Um, but, you know, he was just worried about like that, even though he was Catholic, that he was still Jewish and they would, I guess some of the Nazis had to even said like, oh, but will we decide who's Jewish and who's not Jewish, which just, again, goes back to that mob mentality, you know, the mentality of like, you're just, you're making this all up. Like there's no, you know, none of this is, is rooted in, in truth from the Nazis, not from Fritz Lang, but also that he would tell the story that Joseph Goebbels like came to him one night, wanted to make him the head of the the German, you know, film industry of, of oh, Ufa, right. and, he, and you know, but I mean, he's telling he he would tell the story in a way that that's why I'm like, why don't they make a movie about this? But he's uh, was saying that it all happened in one night, and that he had to do you know flee to Paris that night and leave all his possessions and everything that he had in Germany behind. When some things that kind of don't support that is that I guess there's no record that he actually went to Paris that evening and that there are other things right. in his passport that would suggest that he went back and forth. But even even after even all of that, it's like, but he did get out of Germany when he was like heavily <laughs> entrenched in making movies there. And like, I don't, I, I just think that that's a, a, a fascinating thing. And then, you know, coming to, eventually coming to the United States and and you know then then more aging here and seeing seeing like Hollywood change again like just all the all the all the changes that he that he saw throughout his his career and I think um, it also seemed like maybe he he was he was a bit bitter that he wasn't getting kind of the the recognition um, that he thought he deserved once he did come to Hollywood initially, yeah. which could, you know, that, that could be true, but you know, when you're, when you're not the nicest guy to work with, then, then maybe, maybe some of that's on you, but still he, he deserves a lot of credit because he's still influencing movies today. Without question. Well said, I think to also end 
since I began with uh, that that little excerpt from the interview he he made with um, with uh, William Friedkin, which I believe is also on the M Criterion disc. I'm assuming that's got to be available too on the Criterion channel. I highly recommend it. It's very interesting to hear Long in his own words uh, talk about cinema. And <laughs> in the end, he basically hated giving interviews. And you can tell, you can tell <laughs> watching him talk about his own work. He's kind of reticent and kind of reserved about some things. And again, sort of uh, says, no, I'm not a political filmmaker. I don't consider myself to be that. But he also says something that I think, you know, David Lynch kind of says in a nicer way in that you just let the films speak for themselves. If, you know, a director has to give an interview to explain his story and elaborate on his decisions and choices, then you're not a good filmmaker. <laughs> That's what he said, mm. you know? And I, I can understand that. And I think a lot of great directors are of that mindset of just let the work speak for itself. And that's totally fair. I mean, that's kind of, I embrace that perspective. I don't expect every director to do a commentary for every film they do and explain every little choice and thing that they make. And maybe a lot of film directors hate being on podcasts because <laughs> again, go see their movies and enjoy them, talk about them, uh, dissect them. But, you know, you don't know, you don't need me to explain it. And that's yeah. really what he ultimately says at the end of that interview, which uh, again, everybody should check out. And based on the work that you've seen, Carrie, what would be your top three as of now from, from, from Fritz? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I it's think, always hard to do, but yeah. You know. And oh, and that's so I, I love going through lists. I am really I, I don't make a whole lot of lists myself of like end of the year or anything, anything like that. I've, I've a lot of it's good. Now, that's but. good for your sanity. Trust me. <laughs> uh, but but M, I, I think is 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 number one um, for, for me. And then um, I think I really liked While the City Sleeps, which is oh, a later one. I better see that. And then I think I think maybe Metropolis would be third then. Yeah, as a, a big noir fan, I will say that, and I, I got, there's still titles I really need to see, and I would say Metropolis would be my number four, but uh Number three for me is Scarlet Street with uh, Edward G. Robinson. It's one I watched earlier this year, kind of randomly. And I just went, whoa, this is, this is uh, something else. And something I'll talk about uh, at length, hopefully on another episode on this director. Uh, and that also holds true for number two, which is The Big Heat. I was not prepared for how many... Um, hot coffee to the face scenes there were in that and one uh, courtesy of one lee marvin who always plays a great villain and then of course number one is m because it has to be <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, you mentioned that while the city sleeps, you only live once. There's Ministry of Fear, Secret Beyond the Door. Again, there's a lot more that I'd like to talk about at length in some point in the future, because uh, I'm sure they're fascinating examples of uh, his work. So stay tuned for that. I'm sure that's going to happen. But in the meantime, thank you so much, Carrie, for coming on this podcast finally. Long overdue. Long yeah, overdue. thanks for having me. This was fun. I'm happy to hear that. Where can people find you if they want to follow your work and check out other things you do? Uh, well, I think the people can can check out uh, Christmas movies, actually. Um, our, our next episode in, in January is going to be about babes in Toyland. Which ah, yes. Which kind version? Of recurring. It's an animated version. But I, ah. I do know that. So we've every January, we've kind of done a different version of, of Babes in Toyland. And while Fritz Lang never directed a, a version of Babes in Toyland, many of them feature an angry mob scene. So <laughs> it's, it all it's, ties together. It all ties together there. And uh, you can find out whether or not you can knit to a, a movie by listening to the podcast and then um, hear me uh, go through a thousand and one movies you must see before you die. And so um, that's a lot of fun. I host that with with Colin Suter. Um, so yeah, Christmas movies all year long. It's it's possible. It sure is. And you could probably just do an entire year on Hallmark Christmas movies, I'm sure. Yeah, which we watched a couple of those um, over the over kind of the 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 Christmas holiday here. I, I, I think, I think they're better if you watch those with, with a bingo card, you can find <laughs> lifetime hallmark bingo cards. There's definitely a formula. So. Yeah. A lot of those, I, I don't doubt that for a second. And it's one of those things that, you know, even romantic comedies, or like I mentioned, coming of age films, you can kind of go, yep. Check, check check this box, check that box. You know, there's certain tropes you come to expect. And yeah, I, I, I do appreciate when a filmmaker decides to subvert your expectations when it comes to those things. Even the name of the leading man, we watched two movies in less than a week where the leading, where the love interest, leading love interest male character's name was Cole. <laughs> come on, people. Let's at least it wasn't at, yeah. at least it wasn't chad you know that's true <laughs> uh, yeah trinity you don't need to be with chad no that's yeah, that's the message know. of that movie uh and and ladies and gentlemen have i got a podcast episode for you coming up in about a week yep it's the year-end 2021 spectacular in which we run down our favorite films of 2021 focusing mainly on 10 titles although obviously we'll mention some honorable mentions, uh, but we where it's going to be really interesting because uh, we all tend to have somewhat differing opinions on things. Uh, and yeah, I have this is the first year I'm doing this where I have no idea what Patrick is going to say because he's not even on Letterboxd anymore. Mm. So I don't even know what he's watching unless he emails me or texts me. He said he's seen something. So it's going to be interesting for me because I'm going to probably be reacting a lot more than usual. Uh, although I tend to, I tend to make strange sounds anyway, and just act weird. 
uh, because once you get to the, you know, three and a half hour mark of talking and listening to movie nerds, you, yeah, your, your brain starts to do strange things in that moment, but I'm, I'm so grateful for it. And I know people look forward to it. So it's kind of why yeah, I, I do look these forward things. to it. Yeah. I'm, I'm not only a, a guest on, on the director's club, but I'm also a, a fan of the director's club and I, I enjoy the, the end of the year stuff. Cause I always hear about some titles just when I think like I, 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 by the end of the year, I feel like I have heard of most of what, what's big that that's coming out, but I always hear about some, some movies that, that I, that I missed and, and want to, want to check out from listening to that episode. So. Yeah. It, thank you so much for those kind words. I appreciate that. And obviously I'm a huge fan of your show. Uh, and yeah, it's, it always, it's, it's an always interesting time, January and February, because it becomes just nothing but okay binging as many 2021 movies as i can and then i have to go and binge 1992 movies <laughs> for the february seven hour epic spectacular um and, and i get some of the runoff on both of those as well with, with yes because he's he also is preparing for 1992 so then i, I always look so... at the list to see what what i want to watch <laughs> He is so thorough and he starts way earlier <laughs> than I do when it comes to prepping uh, that I'm so appreciative uh, that he puts in the work and the time. And I uh, now that grad school's over, I think I can finally do a little bit more work on, in that regard and see some more and look forward to that as well as the year end special. So everybody stay tuned and send me an email to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com visit directorsclubpodcast.com for older episodes. And of course, check out nowplayingnetwork.net for more great shows like Christmas movies actually featuring today's guest. Thank you so much, Carrie, for coming on. Well, thank you, Jim. Happy holidays to all. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.